This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. There's a saying, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And when it comes to friends, when did you make your best friends? I'll be chatting about this and so much more with Monica McInerney and her new book, The Godmothers. Welcome back to Published or Not, Monica. Hello, Jan. It's lovely to be here. And it never feels like I've launched a book until I've spoken to you. So thank you for having me on again. (laughs) Jeannie, Olivia and Maxie are best friends. Where did they meet? Jeannie, Olivia and Maxie met at quite a religious boarding school uh, in Victoria. They all went on to do different things after high school. What were they? So they were very different characters and, um, and they found themselves sharing this, you know, dorm in this, in this quite strict boarding school and it forged them. I think they were all kind of uh, a little bit outsiders themselves. But uh, Olivia went on to study art history and became an art historian and a curator. Uh, Maxie was dramatic and theatrical from, um, from an early age and she went on to be study drama and to become an actress in London, actually. Uh, and then Jeannie, their friend, who has had a more of a troubled life. And, um, and she went on to do and try all different sorts of everything from cleaning to waitressing mm-hmm. to shelf stacking. And so quite a different career trajectory for her. It was also Jeannie at 21 who got pregnant and made her two friends, the godmothers. They had contact over the years because the godmothers would visit occasionally. And it was always great fun for Eliza and another reason for more drinks for Jeannie. So by the time Eliza was 11 years old, she had lived in eight different country towns. They didn't know whether to believe Jeannie when she said they moved often to avoid being arrested for shoplifting and burglary. Now here I'm going to ask Monica McInerney to read from The Godmothers. And this is Jeannie speaking. You believed me, didn't you, that I would leave my baby daughter, the absolute light of my life, on her own while I went sneaking around a country town where everybody knows each other, where people notice if a fly from out of town happens to buzz in. Yet I somehow managed to gaily flit in and out, stealing family heirlooms and fluffy toys. She began to laugh, the laugh Olivia and Maxie now hated hearing. I wish I had done it. It's a fucking ingenious idea, actually. She picked up the blue bowl. Maxie, I bought this in a charity shop. It cost me $2. And I bought that in a charity shop. She pointed to the sofa. And those curtains. And my food? I bought that with money I saved from my pension or money I earned in a part-time job I got while Eliza was in creche, like thousands of other single mothers before me. Will I run through my CV for you now? Hospital cleaner filing clerk, and currently the finest shelf stacker in all the land. See these hands? She held them up. They can stack 20 cans on a single shelf faster than you can say beans means Heinz. She laughed again. More fool me in hindsight. Being Australia's answer to Robin Hood would have been far more lucrative. They tried to laugh it off that night. It wasn't easy. They really had believed her. They still weren't entirely convinced it was made up. But in an unspoken agreement, they decided to let it go. Well, Jeannie had a gift for storytelling and her two friends wondered at times whether it was more like compulsive lying. This all took part when Eliza was 11 years old. What promise did Eliza's godmothers hold? 
They promised to, to, in fact, there's a quote on the back of the book, which I'll read out. I don't want two wishy-washy godmothers, Jeannie had said. No dolls, no pink dresses, just lots of adventures, lots of spoiling. The pair of you like two mighty warriors protecting her at every step. So it was a real case of, of wanting her two best friends to, to help her look after her little daughter. There was another promise Jeannie made to Eliza when she turned 18. What was that? Eliza was never told uh, who her father was, truthfully. But Jeannie, as you said, was a, Jan is a, um, a great storyteller, a, a, quite a wild imagination. And so Eliza has grown up hearing that her, her father might be a spy, he might be an explorer, he might be all sorts of things. But she has always joked with Eliza and, uh, and said, when you're 18, the day you're 18, I'm going to tell you everything. I'm going to tell you the whole truth about your father. So this is a promise that, that uh, Eliza has been waiting for all, you know, all of her, her young life. Prior to Eliza's 18th birthday, Jeannie dies. And the book starts with Eliza at 30 years old. And she's well organised in her life, but her whole world is imploding until she gets an offer from her godmother. Now, this is, this is all happening. So how's her world imploding? One of the things I love to do in all of my novels is throw what I call an emotional explosion into the mix somehow. Although I've got the characters set up and they think they've got this safe life and then something happens to completely catapult them out of where they are and, and, uh, and change their life around. And Eliza, because of this kind of quite tricky childhood that she's had and this you know, tragic event with her mother as a young woman, she has built herself this tiny, safe, enclosed lonely life very deliberately to keep danger at bay life doesn't let that get away with that all the time and uh, and exactly in the in one of the very early chapters uh she finds her job is whisked away from underneath her her accommodation her flat is going to go as well and out of the blue her two godmothers who are now living in the uk she suddenly finds herself packing to go to edinburgh out of the blue so poor eliza i didn't make it easy for her at the start of this <laughs> so she's going to have her godmothers in the, in the same country and they know that they're going to be asked questions how about that little bit that paragraph from page 173 please monica Olivia was feeling anxious about Eliza's imminent questions. She wished it was possible to ask her to submit them beforehand to give her and Maxie some insight into what she wanted to know. Olivia had to be honest with herself. It was also so she and Maxie could get their stories straight, decide which questions they really could answer truthfully, work out in advance which ones they couldn't. Ah, the truth. If only it was that simple is a quote. Now, usually in Monica McInerney's books, we'd be travelling to Ireland, but it's Edinburgh in Scotland and Montgomery House. This was a most impressive place. Is it <laughs> based on something real? Oh, it's based on fanciful thinking, Jan. It's, um, it's, a, it's a, a boutique hotel in beautiful Edinburgh. Before, I've had the ideas and I had the characters in my head for The Godmothers, but I wasn't sure at that stage where 
I was going to send uh, Eliza. And as soon as I set foot in Edinburgh, and I'd been there, you know, a good few times in my life, but um, I thought, ah, this is where she's coming. And it's one of the beautiful parts of being a writer is if the building that you want doesn't exist, you can build it in a couple <laughs> of sentences. So I love visiting boutique hotels. I love staying in them. Um, I love, you know, just going in and having a glass of wine in them. So I basically built this gorgeous boutique hotel in the Haymarket area of Edinburgh. Arts and antiques all through this hotel, set up by Olivia and her husband, Edgar. Now he's got dementia and he's got two of his sons, Alex and Rory, who he has asked to take over the running of hotel. But they're not really keen to, are they? No, it's an, it's a book about family in so many different shapes and sizes, Jan, um, the, the godmothers. I mean, primarily, yes, it's about Eliza and her two godmothers, but nobody exists in a vacuum. And so it, it, I bring in Olivia's family situation as well. And her husband is absent uh, mentally and physically. And, you know, she, she adores him and misses him so much. And she is stepmother to his two sons who have also committed to being loyal to their father, what their father would want, which is them to work in the family hotel. Um, but it's not its not their dream lives either. So it's not the most content and happy of working <laughs> environments. And that's what Eliza finds herself landing into. You know, sometimes I think when you travel, you think, you know, you land in a new place where you're landing with a family or whatever, and you think, oh, their lives are going to be perfect. It's me that's bringing in my troubles and my complicated situation. And, of course, that's not the case. And Eliza discovers that. She's stepping into a fairly complicated situation herself. This hotel has the problem of a guest that they can't get rid of. She's a monster. She's a monster. It's funny. I am, um, yeah, I, I, as you and I have talked so many times over the years about my books, I really love writing all sorts of different characters of different ages and, and different connections to my main character. And oftentimes, I, you know, I, I like to have kind of a sparky, you know, misbehaving character. And sometimes they do start to behave themselves. But this one, her name is Celine, and she is not even the nightmare of being um, Olivia's mother in law staying as a permanent resident in the hotel, the Montgomery Hotel. She's Olivia's husband's first wife's mother. So she's like a, you know, mother-in-law, outlaw, if you like. And she is so badly behaved. She's foul-mouthed. Um, she's selfish. She's self-obsessed. She's full of entitlement. She hates them all. And I have never had as much fun writing a character. <laughs> I actually had to edit out so many scenes with Celine. I think I was able to vicariously, you know, let off quite a lot of steam by, by all the scenes with Celine. Well, Eliza steps in with her organisational skills in helping to organise Celine's history, and she's called Voldemort's PA. I, I popped that in for a couple of reasons, actually. Also, um, obviously, you know, like Voldemort being the you know the horror the horror character that we all know, but also because um, the Harry Potter books were written by J.K. Rowling in Edinburgh, so that was my little nod to Harry oh. Potter <laughs> as well, like a little secret one there. Well, in complete contrast in age and politeness is Sullivan. Now, tell us a little about him. Sullivan is an 11-year-old young Australian boy and Eliza meets him when she's on the plane on the way over and she finds herself sitting next to uh, this unaccompanied minor who is, for all the bad manners, as you say, that Celine has and, uh, and the wildness, Sullivan is a very particular young man, uh, quite a quirky young fella, beautiful vocabulary, beautiful manners, very earnest and deeply lonely. And he notices something in Eliza um, and decides that he's going to 
help her. The joy and fun I had writing Celine's terrible, wild scenes. I loved writing Sullivan. And again, I could almost write another whole novel about Sullivan. I ended up having to edit so many of his scenes out because I was just having fun for him, but they weren't actually necessary for the plot. But um, yeah, he was, he's been he, one of my favourite characters to write. He can ask such personal questions and get away with it and make them bear their soul. Now, there's a lot going on, but the plot is to find the father. And that takes Eliza to Ireland. There's secrets and truth are exposed and a romance is kindled. There's also a Gretna Green wedding, but it's not Eliza's. It's Maxie's. And she's also changing jobs from being an actor to a playwright. And one of the last chapters in The Godmothers is a part of a play. And you've even put in stage direction and lighting angles. So Monica McKerney, is this possibly a new narrative form? you'll be taking up? I, I go and see a lot of plays. Like normally I live in Dublin as I go to the theatre a lot and I'm really intrigued by how playwrights can put it. a great deal of information across. Like as a novelist, I have the luxury of being able to write backstory, being able to write interior ideas from my characters and put across, you know, what's going on like that. And I just think it's miraculous how much a playwright can tell you with a few key words. So, yes, I... Mm. Um, I I had to become a playwright while I was becoming a novelist, while I was being a novelist with this book as well. So it may well. I'm, it's been an interesting year, Jane, because I'm also writing a children's book series. Um, I feel like I've been switching, you know, this is the 20th year of me being published and I'm switching and trying lots of different sorts of writing and storytelling, uh, which I'm enjoying a lot. Eliza's godmothers are her mother's best friends. Will they be able to help her find her father? Friendships and Truths are at the heart of The Godmothers by Monica McInerney. Thank you very much, Monica. Thank you, Jan. It's lovely to talk to you again. And now it's David's turn. We tend to break the socially accepted rules and codes of society as we discover and explore our sexuality when growing up. Barry Lee Thompson delves into this realm of the unstated and the uncertain in his collection of stories, Broken Rules and Other Stories. So, Barry, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me on the program. Now, this is and isn't a collection of short stories. What have you done in terms of the narrative here? Well, it's very interesting that you say that. It, you're right. It is a collection of short stories, 17 standalone stories. And they could all be read completely individually as an entire piece of work. But also something I wanted to work on through the, a lot of the process of putting the collection together, which I found really interesting, was to link the stories. And they're linked in some more obvious ways than others. For example, the sexual identity theme is one particular link. There's also themes of... Um, working class life. I have had a few responses from people that they've seen the, the book almost as a novel in form. There's one character, Stephen, yes. who seems central as he grows up, but then there are stories that are told from a first person narrative mm -hmm. where no one's actually named. So it could or couldn't be Stephen. It's open. It's quite interesting with the with the character Stephen. One of the main things I wanted to work on was to establish that link of character 
it's something that's explored in the work of Jean Rees, in the books of Jean Rees, but also in um, the short stories of Frank Morehouse, the Australian author. So I was very interested in that idea of continuity of character. Another interesting thing about it is that although Stephen has been uh, seen as the main character, and you mentioned Stephen, then there's only a named character in five of those stories, which I think is really interesting. And there are 75 instances where the name Stephen is used throughout the book. And most of those occur in one of the stories, Hot Spell. So it's almost as if a cluster of mentions of the name in that story kind of casts a spell almost over the whole collection. What I like the idea of is the power that readership has and that you send the, the book into the world and then it's completely up to the reader to interpret it however they want to. It's um, also the universality of what Stephen and the other characters go through. For example, there is an extraordinary undercurrent in many of the stories. The opening piece, Their Cruel Routines, has Stephen observing his mother yes. and the mother observing Stephen. The mother seems to be hiding something. Stephen seems to be hiding something. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by memory. I, I think it's um, one of those things that changes over time. And I'm fascinated by that idea and the way that people can almost be unsure of things that happen. This is very relevant to fiction, I think, because sometimes I'll write a story. It will be based, there'll be a, a sort of germ of an idea which gives rise to the story. And then it kind of becomes this fictional piece. And it's almost very hard to tease apart the things that happened and that really happened. And it's even the question of what, what, do, what do we mean when we say that something really happened? But also it relates to Stephen's sexuality and his yes. mother's sexuality as well. You mean the universality in the story itself? Well, the universality lies in the fact that we all go through these sorts of experiences, yes. wondering what the other person might be doing, might be thinking, what our experience means. But then Stephen and his mother are trying to work out their relationship in many ways with the unspoken in the background and the unreliability of memory there as well. Yeah, and we're there. We're there to witness this. And it, it's interesting, isn't it, that here are two people that spend so much time with each other and in, in each other's companies, and yet there is still this mystery. It's the mystery of being human, I suppose, that has gone into their later lives and that they're still exploring. We're always learning in, in a relationship, in our relationships with everybody. We're constantly learning new things about that person. From memory, we then go to fantasy and fabrication. Yes. The Ministry Man is the next story, and it's a recollection of a government educational inspector, but Stephen has fantasised about him, and it's a sort of sexual awakening in many ways in Stephen. In that story, yeah. So Stephen at this stage is, um, it is very much a sexual awakening for him, and fantasy comes in, and this kind of touches on what I was just saying about the um, blaring of fiction and real life in that Stephen invents a whole life for this person who comes into his school and it becomes an outlet for the newness of his sexuality, the newness of his sexual feelings. But his mother is also aware at one point in that story, you're a strange boy, she said, queer in many ways. She's yeah. trying to figure me out. Oh, I, I don't mean that, not in the way it sounded. So the mother seems 
to know, but it's unstated. There's almost a sense, isn't there, a bit later on the beach where he gets the feeling that he had an opportunity to do something, to, to maybe take the relationship with his mother to another stage. It's the things that are unknown between them. And I think there's a, there's a sense of regret that he's already experiencing in this story that something has just passed by. That, that is an opportunity. You know, she's she sort of brought something to the conversation they're having on the veranda while she's smoking. It's a very intimate moment between the two of them. But the opportunity for him to be honest with her and to kind of talk about himself and open up is kind of lost. You also pick up on that notion in another story called Grey, which is about a sexual encounter between an older man and the narrator. Now, interestingly, the narrator is unnamed in this one. But what's interesting here, it's not the sex that is central. There's an intimacy that follows in sharing a coffee after the event. And again, there's this background of unstated communication. Yes, and the coffee, as you mentioned, that takes place in the park, the unstated communication, and yet the two of them, I think, in that time, that very short space of time that they spend in each other's company, they establish something of a powerful connection, I think, and there's a terrific amount of empathy that runs between the two characters in that story. And it wouldn't matter whether they are homosexual or heterosexual, it would still be the same story, an encounter with the unspoken in the background. Absolutely. And this is the universality. You know, we're all different, every, every single one of us. And I think that every single person is a different person. Yet we do share these uh, traits, these commonalities or universalities between us. So, yeah, that, that it's about human relationships. And as you say, they, they don't need to be gay. They could, this could be a straight couple or, or it could be a different kind of relationship between them. One I particularly identified with because of my background in uh, teaching and education is careering. The careers counsellor at the school opens up a sort of Pandora's box (laughs) by asking the student to imagine where he'd like to work. He asked if I'd given any thought to what I might do when I left school later that year. I nodded. He nodded too. Then he asked me to picture the environment I'd like to work in. He told me to take my time. And when I was ready, I was to tell him all about it. And what follows is not necessarily what the careers officer expected. I don't think the careers officer, I think it was the last appointment of the day for the careers officer. It was probably quite a strange note for them to end the day on. We often ask these vague questions in teaching. Mm. What would you like to do? Well, this happens to be more sexually oriented where mm. it's, it's Michael in this case is the character. Yes. Fabricates a whole encounter which is revealing about his sexual orientation. Yes, and quite revealing, I think, about the uh, the careers officer as well in the way he responds to this interaction with his student or with the student. I love the unexpected and I love the strangeness of life and, you know, uh, things that go against the grain slightly, which give you sort of material to work with as a writer very much when someone does something that's a little bit outside the the norms. I, I would imagine the careers officer will go home and think about this interaction quite deeply and, you know, what just happened there. And what it has done, it's, it's contravened the normal 
social expectation, the routine careers counsellors or teachers get into by asking a question, thinking of an automatic reply. But here, Michael has gone well beyond what would be conventional. Yeah. And even at the point where, yeah, towards the end where the, the careers officer says, is there anything else? And then he mentions Mr. Fullerton, the manager of the office that he's just completely created from nothing. And then that's, that's where they then go into even stranger territory in the story, I think. Another one you've got here, which actually highlights the difference between the fantasy and the reality, yeah. is in Fragrant. There's this romantic opening he is the frisson of surprise in a stranger's glance a bursting run through a meadow of flowers wildflowers however the conclusion is somewhat uh seedier he led me someplace that over time and successive meetings became our place as if it existed only for us tunnels and stairways dripping water and decades of dust and dirt and oily yellow light rats scratching and guttural rumblings from the trains that first time me and him i'm glad i went it's pretty stark and confronting yes it is and i think there's a whole multitude of relationships in that story it's, it's a very very short piece I, I find that story quite interesting because whenever i read it i feel very emotional and i can't put my finger on there's something in it when i read it myself there's a point in the story where i suddenly feel quite emotional and I, i'm not quite sure what it is we come to the conclusion of this collection with an image that perhaps encapsulates a lot of what's going on the bird in your palm, a small thing blinking up at you, you cover, covered it again for its own good in case it should try and jump free. You carried on gently. When you got home, you opened your hands and the bird spilled out motionless and unblinking and lifeless. It's an allegory of sorts, the way you finish this collection, as if we've tried to hold on to something but haven't quite managed to keep it alive in some ways. Mm, I like that you say it's an allegory of sorts. Yeah, it definitely is. It does point to death in that final scene that you've just described. Um, but that could also be a metaphorical death, the death of youth, perhaps. The death you speak of is, is also in some ways the death of a romanticism and replaced for reality. The death of a certainty in some ways for this unknown which is totally different from what we expect those social mores and rules and expectations that are prescribed but they've gone and are replaced by something else definitely yes and i think this is quite a stark image and quite a stark memory but as with all the other stories i think there's a love and there's love that permeates the the narrative it's also poignant in terms of wanting to preserve life and hold on to something delicate only to find that our own action has perhaps not succeeded in keeping that little precious thing alive. Yeah, that's so true. And um, I think that it touches on their regret as well, that, that that can never be changed. But I'd like to think through all of the through all of this that there is a light that seeks around the edges. So I'd like to think that readers will see light seeping around the edges. Well, there is a light that uh, permeates them all, as you say. The book is called Broken Rules and Other Stories. The author is Barry Lee Thompson. 
and it's a transit lounge release. So thank you very much, Barry, for talking with me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you, David. I've really enjoyed chatting with you today. Well, Jan, that takes us out for another week. And look, more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with. Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, we will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week. See you then. Well, let's talk then. (laughs) (laughs) Listen in next week. Bye for now. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.